Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change, sponsored by LionRock.life. When you have an addicted child, you tend to not talk about it, not reveal it. And when you have someone in prison, you tend not to, you know, disclose that. My close friends knew, but then everyone kind of goes back to their life. It's over now. Thank goodness it's settled. Now he's in prison. Okay, he'll serve his time. He'll come out. People don't understand going to prison. It's not going, it's living it and what happens inside. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame, and I am your host. Today, we have Lynn Rothenberg. Lynn is a former social worker, writer, and photographer whose son struggled with addiction from a young age. Lynn and her husband split up when her son was only three years old, and she noticed the effects of the loss early on. Her son's addiction began with marijuana, then progressed, and at each phase, she just wanted the drugs to stop. Words like addiction began to surface from professionals, but she knew her son. That wasn't him. He was her sweet boy. It was just a phase. And once he was able to stop the substances, they could go back to the way things had been before. There were rehabs and detox. And with each came the promise that things would be different. He would feel so clear about everything, but it was only a matter of time before they were in the same place again. But this time, things had moved on to heroin. Her son was eventually arrested and sent to prison for six years, and Lynn was forced to live an even lonelier existence than she had as the parent of someone struggling with addiction. Each time she visited, it was like leaving her son in a war zone where she could never be certain of his safety. Today, her son is sober with a job and a family, and she has done incredible work in healing from this experience. She is back to work in photography and is in the last phases of her manuscript about her experience. Everything about this interview is so important for parents to heal, no matter where you are in this journey, even if you've never had a child that has struggled. This episode will be such a resource for you to send to other people who are struggling and to reduce stigma. This is such an important episode. I hope that everybody who's listening pays close attention to all the different aspects that we talk about, including the fact that marijuana can be addictive, that a child or an adult child who has a history of substance use, who is using marijuana instead of their quote, drug of choice or alcohol instead of their quote, drug of choice, that that does not mean that they are out of the woods. Lynn's growth through this conversation and through her son's experience is palpable. She walks us through what her beliefs were, what the thoughts were for her when people started to bring up addiction and how impossible it was for her to imagine where they actually ended up. Please enjoy Lynn Rothenberg. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. 
Lynn, thank you so much for being here. I'm honored to have been invited. Thank you. So Lynn, tell me a little bit about your background, where you grew up and how you became a social worker. Okay. I grew up in upstate New York and I didn't, I wasn't initially a social worker. I'm a little bit of a restless soul. I wanted to always be a photographer. So I became a portrait photographer and I had a studio for many years, maybe about 10 or 11. And then I didn't care for the business of photography anymore. I just got tired of it and I'd always liked to write. So I became a journalist. I started working for a newspaper and I really loved that. And I did that for a number of years. I did some freelance work as well. I left the newspaper after a few years and then I did some freelance writing. And one of the articles I wrote was about psychiatry because I had noticed that um, I'd heard through people that psychiatrists were not doing therapy anymore. They were just prescribing. And my father was a psychiatrist. And so I was especially interested in this. So I wrote an article, sort of an investigative article about how this shift had come about. It's old news now, but in the, I guess this was in the around 2000 three or something like that. It was just starting to be like that. And so I interviewed a lot of psychiatrists and all of that. And as I was doing the article, I thought, you know, why am I writing about this? I'm getting eight cents a word. I want to be a therapist. So that's when I went back to graduate school and got my MSW because everyone said that's the key to becoming a therapist. I graduated in May and I sent out many letters and I wanted to work in a mental health clinic. I was very interested in mental illness and I had an almost offer, but what they did was they didn't hire me, but they sent my resume over to a substance abuse agency and said, you might want to have a look at this, which was really strange. (laughs) Why didn't they hire me? (laughs) So the agency called me and they said, you know, we're interested. Do you think you could work with this population? And At that time, uh, my son was using drugs, but it wasn't severe. And I thought, if I hesitate, I'm not getting this job (laughs) and I, I need this job. So I said, I'm completely comfortable. No, I would look forward to it. So he said, we'll come in tomorrow. And and that was it. So that was my first job. How old was your son when you took this job? I think he was 26 or 27, something like that. Okay, okay. So uh, let's talk a little bit about raising your son and you're no longer married to your son's father. When did you guys get together? When did you divorce? So we were married in 76. We had David in 82. Okay. And we moved back to the East Coast for a variety of reasons, but we lived in San Francisco. Okay. That's where he had his job. So we moved back here and then he left a year later. He he wasn't really here for that first year. He had a case. He was he was a lawyer and he was finishing this case. And, you know, I encouraged him because it was an exciting case. And I said, finish the case, just go back and forth. And, you know, then you'll be settled because he had a job here as well. And so we did that. But then at the end of the year, he he left. That was right before David started kindergarten. And so he started school, frankly, with a broken heart. I saw it. Yeah. And what about your heart? Yeah, that was, I think I was in shock. I couldn't believe he was leaving. I couldn't believe he was leaving David. I understood, okay, he he wasn't happy with me anymore. I tried to get him to work on the marriage. We went to a therapist, but he was, you know, gone. But I remember saying to him, think about David. What about David? 
we need to work on this. You need to at least be in the area. But he moved 3,000 miles away. I just tried to carry on. I wanted to be, I was the only parent, so I was going to be strong. And I had to just carry on. That's all. I mean, there was really no choice. What kind of kid was was David like? What was it like raising him after that as a single parent? David was, I would say, he had some darkness that I saw in him. That sounds funny to say about a young child. No, I know. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, he often would be difficult, but I felt like why is he why is he so unhappy and i i mean i thought he was unhappy because his father left but i thought maybe it's something more i would i always kept our dialogue wide open you know i would say to him you know is something bothering you let's talk about it and he sometimes as he got older he was still young but he wasn't four anymore i don't know how old he was but he said he felt For the most part, I felt pretty alone, and David did. He said to me as he was older, I'm the only one who all my friends have a father living in the same house. Mm. And, you know, this was very difficult for me because I felt guilty the marriage hadn't worked. And also, I did not want to poison his relationship with his father. So I didn't say things like, well, I wanted your father to stay, but he wanted, you know, I didn't say anything like that. And my husband and I both agreed we would not say anything negative about each other. We would be supportive. So that's what we, that's how we carried on. But I did take David to a therapist when he was fairly young because he seemed so contrary. And as a working single mother, Even though my parents were nearby, I was on duty all the time and it was hard. And I just wanted to make him more compliant. But, you know, I I don't mean to make a blanket statement, but I have never, I, in my travels, in my therapeutic travels, I never landed on a good child therapist for David. So he had trouble in school. He was disorganized. He did have ADHD that didn't come out until much, much later. And he had a trouble being organized, but he was always a nice child. He was kind and he didn't have social problems with other children. But I kept thinking to myself, something is underlying this moodiness in him because sometimes he really seems so into himself. And he was a child, you know, I just thought, you know, I don't expect him to be happy all the time, but I couldn't. And so this my search continued through many, many years. When did you become aware of David using any substances? It was when he, you know, it's hard, the years kind of blend, but I noticed that he was tired a lot. Mm-hmm. And he would say, I'm a teenager, mom. You know, what do you expect? I have to get up early every day. I'm in school all day. I'm tired. But you know that intuition that keeps, you know, needling you. Yes, I do. So, yeah. So one day he left for school and I took it upon myself to snoop. And I had never done that. We each respected each other's privacy. Right. And, but I went into his room at first. I didn't find anything. I did notice a tan metal box and I picked it up and I couldn't get it open. It was locked. So I thought, well, I don't know what that is. Good. I don't have to deal with that. But For the next day or two, I kept thinking about the box and I didn't say anything to David, but I went in with pliers and a paperclip and I 
unhinged the box and there was a big fat bag of marijuana, like a gallon bag, one of those. Mm -hmm. And I was shocked, really, really shocked. You know, I confronted him and that was probably the beginning of the dance we did, you know, where he would tell me something and I didn't know how to react. I would believe him or if I didn't, I didn't know what to do. This was new. This was all new. And he said, oh, well, that's not mine. That's not mine, mom. I'm keeping it for a friend. He asked me to keep it. So I said, well, who's this friend? And he said, I can't tell you. I can't tell you. And I said, I'm calling his mother. And he said, oh, if you do that, there's going to be big trouble. So that intimidated me. I thought, big trouble? What are they going to do? Will they kick David out? Will they kick, you know, what's going to happen? Will this kid, is he violent? I don't know who this other kid is. So I said, I said, well, okay, I won't do that. But don't you ever bring drugs into this house again. I won't, mom, I promise. I promise I never will. I'll return it first thing tomorrow. And I thought, well, that was a close one. Okay, that's mm -hmm. over. That's over. I intimidated him. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can laugh about it now, but I kind of believed him. I yeah. wanted to believe him. My son, you have to know, he was so cute. Now, I know every mother says that, but he, people used to say to me, oh, he's so cute. He had red hair, blue eyes, freckles. He looked like, you know, like a Tom Sawyer or a Huckleberry, you know, just like this sweet little boy. And he went to a school that had a uniform. So I looked at him and I would think, How? he's not a drug user. Not, not someone who looks like this. Remember, uh -huh. I was in my innocent days. Right. So what did what did you know about addiction at that time? What did you think? Talk to me, you know, in your innocent days, what did you think addiction looked like or was? I didn't think about addiction. <laughs> I never knew anyone who was addicted. No one in my family had a problem. No one in my husband's family. I never thought about addiction. So in my mind, you know, if I look back, I probably envisioned addiction as scrawny people strung out in the alleyways. And, you know, at this time, heroin had not hit the suburbs. I just never thought about addiction. Not at all. It's interesting. I mean, there's so much that I either relate to or know that, you know, went on in our house and, and that my parents would relate to. And I think the hardest part when thinking and talking about addiction and, you know, I'm 17 and a half years sober. I got sober at 19. My parents went through very similar things that you did, including navigating the legal system. And I, I was a ward of the state of California by the time I was 16 years old. So, you know, very similar feelings of, wait, whoa, whoa, how, I just lost control of my child. Like, how is this happening? You really want to believe your child. And that's where this total pathology, this lying pathology comes in. And if you haven't experienced it or been in it yourself, it's really tough to understand how your child could go from this wonderful little sweet creature to this person, you, an alien inhabiting your child's body. I think the other thing that makes it difficult is if your friends have children not having any of these issues, people tend to try to placate you and say, oh, it's you're worrying too much. People told me I was a worrier when it became more serious. Friends said, David's good. They knew him. They said, he's a good boy. You don't need to worry. You're just, this is what people do in high school. And some people do. And mm -hmm. when they leave, they stop. Mm -hmm. But there's a percentage who can't, who don't and can't. And I just was very frightened by it. I didn't think 
Again, I didn't think he was going to be a compulsive drug user. I just wanted him to stop drinking and using marijuana. That's all. I just, because he wasn't doing well in school. You know, the first time the word addiction was raised was when he was in his senior year and things were ramping up, which as we know, that's a sign of addiction. Mm-hmm. It doesn't stay the same. It It's a progression. Progressive. Yep. And the therapist, I remember exactly where I was standing in his office when he said to me, you want to get a hold of it now because it gets much more difficult later when it goes into addiction. And I thought, addiction? I thought, oh, brother, you know, he's really... I just want him to stop David from using alcohol and marijuana. I I thought, he's just exaggerating this situation completely. Addiction does not apply to this situation. The addiction came very late in my mind. You know, my recognition came very late. What would you, knowing what you know today, what would you tell yourself, the, the parent, in that moment when he said that? Well, I would tell myself to listen and ask him, find out what what is addiction? Okay. Ask questions. I would have said, well, why are you mentioning addiction? So that he could give me more information. Instead, I shut the door and I just stayed focused on his substance use. At what point did you say, oh my gosh, this, they were right. This is addiction. After high school, he went to his first 28-day rehab for marijuana. He was practically failing high school, and they told me that he might not graduate. And it gets complicated, but he changed schools several times. He went to four different schools. And so he was back to the public school for his high school year and was not doing well. And things had ramped up. Weirdness were happening just chaos. And I was more and more worried. And then he was stoned at his graduation. And this therapist I mentioned earlier had said to me, he needs inpatient. And when he told me that I didn't believe him because I didn't know, I didn't know the topic. I just didn't know what that meant. And I thought he's too young to go to an inpatient. There'll be adults there. There'll be older people. They'll tarnish him. I mean, I had all these distorted views. Let me, let me ask, let me, let me drop in right here. So if a plumber told you that you had a massive plumbing issue, I'm uh, you can tell I don't know anything about plumbing because we'll leave it as the major clog in the system. Okay. Yes. I probably should have picked some other analogy. But if a plumber tells you you have a plumbing problem, if an electrician tells you there's an electrical problem, if a physician tells you you broke your femur, if someone, if an expert, a subject matter expert tells you this is a problem, typically most believe people it? believe them. Yes, that's so, right. What I find interesting and what I'm sure you can relate to is this this piece that I see all the time where when it comes to this topic, for whatever reason, the subject matter experts are not deferred to in the same way. There's a resistance because we don't want to believe that that's true. But if we had some sort of similar situation in all these other areas, we would believe it. Well, I think your analogy is good because I often thought about the doctor one. And I thought if a doctor diagnosed someone with chemical dependence, there'd be a shutdown. But if they said 
you know, let's say broken or liver disease or something, you'd be, oh my God, what can I do to fix it? <laughs> right. Not so with this. I think that my feeling, you know, if I revisit myself at that time, as a mother, you have that history with your child. Mm-hmm. And you've seen all their cute little moments and their loving moments and their hugs. And and my son and I were very close, especially, I think, when they're just the two of you. I think yeah. there's a more intense bond. For sure. And so so I knew I had all of that. And now I have a man who doesn't know, hasn't known David very long. And he's telling me, you know, he needs inpatient drug hab. And I think part of me is probably thinking, you don't know my son. You think you do. You're just judging him based on some of these behaviors. It's not rational what I'm thinking, right. what I was thinking. Right. But that, I think, is what my mindset was. Yes. And it's very hard as a parent to have someone tell you. I mean, he's my only child. Yeah. And this was not the plan I had. Of course. My expectations were he was going to do really well in school. And he had told me he wanted to be a lawyer. You know, what's this? Where did this come from? Correct. But when I saw him at graduation, I thought rehab time. That's it. There are things about this that you hear people use and try to rationalize. And your person, your loved one who is addicted is 100% going to absolutely run circles around you about the topic. So you you are going to leave questioning your own reality when we are done with you, because that is how we protect our addiction. And that's, I think, the hardest thing. Even when I deal with people who are stuck in addiction now, I find myself questioning my reality. And that's when that's when a little bell goes off in my head and goes, ding, ding, ding. I'm dealing with someone who's in active addiction. When I am questioning my reality and as it relates to something that doesn't make sense or drugs or any sort of intoxication, as soon as that happens, I immediately know that, that what, what's going on because I did it to people I love more than anything, to people I care about, I jump in front of a bus for, I did it. I did exactly the same thing. And I know what that feeling feels like. And it feels like, wait a minute, am I going insane? It's chaos. Mm -hmm. They create a chaos, you know, where I, I was thinking if he would ask me for money, I think, wait, didn't I just give him the money for that? And I, you know, I couldn't remember because things right. start happening faster and faster yep. and your memory, you cannot keep track unless you have a notebook, put the date, how much you gave, what it was for, but they come at you, as you might know, so quickly. Yep. And it's survival. It's survival. And 100%. so, you know, there's sort of a, a chaos in their life, but there's a parallel process. <laughs> it's in your life too. The ways that we as professionals intervene and handle addiction are counterintuitive to what you would do. The ways in which you can help your child are counterintuitive. You have a, a book and a manuscript that talks about how you inadvertently contributed to your son's addiction. And I am so grateful that you're coming out and talking about this because, you know, when I work with families, when I do interventions, what I tell them is, please, dear God, don't give them any cash. Don't give them money. And, you know, they're like, well, oh, I didn't give them cash. I gave them a grocery card. But you don't understand how we work. We can turn anything into cash. And why? <laughs> I don't want them to be homeless. Unfortunately, if you remove all the consequences from our lives as people in active addiction, 
we have no reason to stop. And we are only listening to rewards and consequences. We're not listening to the, if you loved me, you would stop. Why don't you care? You lied to me. We lost trust. How are we going to build this relationship? Your sister doesn't want to talk to you. How could you do this? We can't hear you. We can't hear you. What we're dealing with is a completely different way of a person thinking. People are trying to talk to their child's frontal lobe, the logic piece of their brain, and it's not on. That's where you get the monster or the person that you don't recognize. It's because they're responding from their brainstem. So David goes to treatment for 28 days for marijuana as a senior. Did you think that he was going to be cured? Of course. Yes, of course. He he was getting treatment. Right. Um, That's easy. He'll go to this rehab and it'll all be over. He'll stop all of this. They did have a family afternoon when they talked to us about, they didn't have a weekend. I've been to many where they have family weekend, but this was just an afternoon. And everyone that was in the room, most of them were husbands or wives. So uh, that was easy for me to single myself out and think, oh, well, right. you know, we're different. This, this, yeah, this, I'm not, it, you know, in the movie 28 Days with Sandra Bullock, I remember she went into the clinical director and he, she said, well, I'm not like them. And she points to the people in the other room. You're not thinking I'm like them. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so I thought, well, he talked to us about addiction. And that was the first time I'd heard. He said, you know, when it hits the brain and when they take a drink, it's like, They've had a shot of heroin. You know, it's very intense, more intense than for a non-alcoholic. And I thought, well, okay, you know, David's not an alcoholic. And he's Mm. a teen, you know, he just graduated from high school. This is good for him, but he's not in the same category as the others here. When he came out, he felt so good. Yeah. And he said, oh, mom, you know, you were right. I did need that. My head feels so clear. And I thought, wow, you know, I did a good thing. This was really, this was good. But, you know, it wasn't the end, of course. When did you realize that he was using again? You know, I didn't know because he moved out of the house. He got an apartment with a friend. So I didn't know what he was doing. Okay. Which is more confounding because you see all this weird, unreliable behavior. Right. But you don't think, well, he's using drugs. I just think, you know... What is wrong with him? You know, sometimes I say, "What, David, why can't you call me back? Most of the time I was baffled. I was annoyed with his behaviors, but I was confused. I mean, you're right when you say it's a confusing time. I was confused because I didn't recognize the beast that was in front of me. I'll never forget my parents arguing my dad saying, why are you spending so much money? Where is this money going? What is happening? And my poor mom, she, you know, she doesn't, she wasn't keeping like a really close track on what she was spending, which I knew I was taking money out of the ATM. So it looked like it was her. There was no reason. It was the same ATM. I was take. I was taking it. She did, you know, I was gone and came right back, put it back. And my, I'll never forget that. My poor mother, just my dad, you know, grilling her and her having no idea. And eventually, because that's where a normal person would go, okay, I'm going to leave it alone because they're paying attention and I got what I needed. And this is, this well has dried up. I need to stop taking money from the No such thing. No such thing. (laughs) I, my parents, I continued to do this and then they pulled ATM footage from the bank pulled ATM footage and 
how you doing? There I am. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, but, but I let them argue about it. I heard them arguing about it and I was very aware and I had guilt. I did have guilt. I didn't, it didn't feel good. I wasn't happy about it, but in my mind, there wasn't a choice. You know, I have some sort of turning points. I was in graduate school. So up until now, I know he has a problem. I know he has a serious drug problem. So I knew that, of course, I had been giving him money because your thinking is, if I give him this money, then he'll be on the right path. You know, if if I give him money for a car, used car, you know, then he, you know, he'll have what he needs. Work. He can go to school. He can work. So right. this is all he needs. Right. And that that's a pure misunderstanding about addiction and everything that you just described. You know, you think that the external will take care of the internal and it doesn't. It's all an internal process. You just do not have the power. But that's a hard lesson for a parent to learn. And finally, I had moved out of my house and he was renting it from me with his girlfriend. And I came in and as the counselor said to me, he walked in later and he said to me, this is an addict's house. And so I knew then that was the first time I would have attached addict to my son. And then um, the next moment of awakening was in the fall of 2009. I didn't know how much he was using, but I knew that he had been taken over yeah. by heroin. He had just been taken over. We stayed close throughout everything. There were gaps of time when I didn't hear from him at all. And every time I called, I'd get his voicemail. And I knew something was going on and I was getting really frightened. And then I was running my men's group one day. I, ha I ran an intensive men's group five days a week. As a social worker. Right, at the agency. And this was a great group. I loved this this group. And one of them was talking about, and they all were clean. They had been clean for a little while. I don't know how long, but, and one was saying his poor mother, he said, I feel so bad about what I did to her. And he said, I would ask her for money. And she would say, I don't want to give you money. I'm afraid you're going to buy drugs. And he said, I'm not going to buy drugs. I'm going to play miniature golf. So she, so, so then he said she'd be really happy and relieved. She'd give him the money. He'd go out, he'd buy drugs. He'd go to the miniature golf, get a scorecard, fill it out, come back and hand it to her. And she'd be happy. And as he was talking, I'm standing there listening, not as a social worker, as that mother. And I thought, oh my God, that's me. This is my son. And that is me. This is what's been going on. After group, I ran downstairs and I immediately asked a colleague if they could recommend someone that I could see, because I realized now I was in a life or death situation for myself. And that's when I started seeing this counselor and, you know, the, but that was right around the end. We were in stage four here, but it took hearing my client tell me that because no one was trying to teach me something. You know, it wasn't someone saying to me, you need to grasp that blah, blah, blah. You don't listen to that kind of information. But he was telling me his experience with his mother and I identified. Right. It was really right. powerful. Which is where the, the you know, for, for whatever it's worth, whatever one might think about Al-Anon and, and, and the family programs, the value is that people are telling their stories and that there's a lot of stuff, there's a lot of feelings that you can relate to. And the relation is where 
the, you know, the value is, because again, it's not, I'm not telling you what to believe. I'm telling you what happened for me and you might relate to that. And therefore there may be similarities and it's the value is huge in just sharing what we call in, in 12 step experience, strength and hope. Like this is, this is what it is. This is what I went through. You may or may not relate to some of it. What happened when you realized that you were contributing unknowingly contributing to your son's disease what happened for you when when that realization came over you and then you started this therapy how did the therapy go this therapist was very good and i went to him i told him what was going on and he met with both of us a couple of times and me alone and then i do remember the moment he said to me if you keep giving money to your son you are speeding his path to his own death. And when he said that to me, uh, I got it. I really got it. So the next few meetings we had with him, we talked about getting David off my financial assistance and support. And he was all for it. He was all, he said, I don't like asking for money. <laughs> and I thought, you don't? This was news. And the therapist was very smart. He said, I bet you don't like feeling dependent on your mom. He said, no, I don't. You know, I do want to be on my own. So we made a pact that at the end of the month, that was November 2009, the end of the month, all support was cut off. And in that time between now and then, this was early November, he'd find a job so he could be self-supporting. Well, that's not how it happened. I mean, he got arrested. He was good till the end of the month. And then December, you know, in December, he was arrested. He was arrested for trying to get money for drugs. Is that accurate? Burglary, because he stole and he went straight to this jeweler combination, jeweler pawn shop and would get the money and buy heroin. It, this was not for self-enrichment. Oh, yes, yes. Of Obviously. <laughs> Yes, Obviously. yes, yes. This was, you know, you get the stuff, you drive to the jeweler, yeah. get the money, go buy the heroin. And his use had grown to such enormous proportions, he needed, you know, a lot of money. So there are two, there's a couple ways to look at it, right? So one way to look at it is that I can see parents saying, oh my gosh, I don't want to cut him off because then they're going to go do something desperate for drugs. And then now we're involved in the legal system, et cetera. So I could see that point of view. like, And then I could see another point of view that says, well, I funded the increase, the steady increase of this amount of the tolerance of the amount of drugs required. And then when I pulled that, the fall to the, to the consequences, the fall, you know, the amount that they needed at that point that they were reliant on was so large because they had been dependent. So like you could see looking at this a bunch of different ways. And I think one of the things that people that, that I want to insert here for, for parents to understand is that there are lots of ways to remove help remove financial help and and to work with your child who is struggling, your adult child who's struggling. One of the things that I often recommend to people is a way that if the child is willing to, the adult child is willing to do X, Y, Z, then some of the things will be funded. So some of the basic needs will be funded. And so there are a lot of different ways to quote unquote, cut someone off, you know, from this stream of income. And the important piece 
is that the consequences are really important for people struggling with addiction to experience. And it's really painful for the family to see that and experience that and and allow that to happen. If you go back to stage one or stage two, when there's drugs, but you know, nothing serious, if they get arrested, this is a time to take this step, let them get arrested because it's not that serious yet. It's early on. Right. If they go to jail, do not bail them out. They won't die. Just let them stay in jail for a night, two nights, three nights. Let them stay there. It's very hard for a parent to think of their poor child in jail. But jail is a lot better than prison. The earlier they get that consequence, the better. When David was in one of the rehabs in Florida, someone said to him, because he was talking about how he was been living his life. And they said, you're going to end up in prison. And he told me this. He said, I thought, no, I'm not. Well, it's like, no one thinks they're going to get addicted. They're just using some drugs. They're having a good time at first. Well, he had a consequence, but the problem was it was like the worst short of death. Yeah. It was the worst consequence. So everything was too late. It was all too late. I mean, it's nice that I finally realized what I was doing was not helpful. Helping is actually stealing your child's opportunities to find themselves, to feel their consequences and to develop mentally. Because when they're using, the developmental process doesn't take place. And by continuing to give the money, I was stealing that opportunity for him to get back on his normal developmental process. And so if you look at it that way, that's a good mantra. You know, helping is hurting. It's stealing from them. I didn't know it. Why would I? Will you tell us a little bit about what happened when he did finally get arrested for burglary? Well, he was, he called me at night. It was about 1030 at night. And he told me he was in the police station. And, you know, I was shocked. (laughs) It proceeded along a very harsh criminal route because the, uh, I had to get a lawyer and the DA was charging him with second degree burglary. He removed the addiction component. This was a district attorney who ran on a single issue platform, and that was drug reform. His words were, drug abuse or addiction should be treated in the mental health zone, not the criminal justice system. So when this happened, I thought, you know, and my lawyer said to me, or David's lawyer said, you know, he probably, he has a chance at drug court because of his history. He's been through so many rehabs. It's clearly, this is a drug. Without this drug, he never would have done this. So I was kind of hopeful, but the DA made it clear very early. There was no chance David was going to get drug court, but the lawyer kept fighting for it while David was in rehab because after his arrest, he went to long-term rehab and he had to go through detox and he was so full of drugs the night of the arrest. I don't know how he survived, quite frankly. But so while he was in rehab, the lawyer was taking his time. He said, you know, we don't want to rush things. You never get anywhere in criminal cases when you rush things. We'll take our time, let things, let David get clean. And the ADA kept pretty firm. He had a firm stand about it. He said he was representing the DA and the DA did not want it. And then our lawyer said, I'm going to meet with the judge, the drug court judge, because in the legal system, if the DA prosecutes, it's all how it's prosecuted. And 
if the DA prosecutes with a, this second degree burglary charge, second degree, that means he's taking him off the track for drug court because second degree burglary does not, by statute, it's a violent crime in New York state. And so they typically do not accept violent offenders into drug court. The lawyer met with the ADA and the judge, the drug court judge, and the lawyer told me the judge was obviously this is a, a drug related charge. Yeah. He said this needs to be reduced to third degree burglary. There was no violence. This is not someone who went, he was daytime burglaries. And he said to the ADA, go back to the DA and have him reduce the charge. So he did. And the DA refused. So that was the end of it. That was the end of drug court. So we knew prison was coming. I mean, there was no, that was the end. And how long did David go to prison? Well, he was sentenced for six years. I mean, we one the lawyer worked out a deal with the ADA that was a, a plea deal of three and a half, no less than three and a half years and no more than five years. So we were okay with that. It was still horrible, but you know, it was better than six years. On the day of the plea, the judge, not the drug court judge, the other judge, I don't know his title, but well, I have a title for him, but I won't mention it. <laughs> his official title. He rejected the plea and he said that's not harsh enough. So he changed it to three and a half to six. He gave him the six. What was that day like? Well, that was a pretty horrible day. You know, it was uh, it was in January and it was cold and it was raining and gray. And some friends went to witness it as support. The judge had the opportunity to sentence him to three and a half. And so I, we were hopeful. We thought maybe, maybe, because the pre-sentencing memorandum, which is something that the lawyer puts together, um, arguing for mitigating circumstances, not to say you're not guilty, you're guilty. But the idea in the legal system is mitigating circumstances prevent too harsh a sentence. That's why they look at them. But this judge had no use for mitigating circumstances. How many years did he serve? Five and a half. He would have been out a little sooner because you get a little reduction, not much. But in the prison, it was a week before he left and the COs um, adulterated a drug test. So he ended up in solitary confinement past his release date. I had to get a lawyer because if I hadn't, he would have stayed the full the full time. So, and, the, and the lawyer was able to prove it was adulterated? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And and wow. the CO was transferred to a different section of the prison. How were they able to prove it? Well, I don't know the details. I just know that I knew someone who knew someone who worked in there. And the word was this particular correction officer was known for adulterating. And some of the other COs didn't like it. They even said they didn't like that. And so the word was around Okay. And then they then they heard that we had a lawyer. Most inmates do not have the money to hire a lawyer. So when they heard a lawyer was on board, they transferred this CO. What was the experience like for you having a child in prison for drug-related crimes? Well, it, it's a lot like having an addicted child because they're both very isolating experiences. You know, when you have an addicted child, you tend to not talk about it, not reveal it. And when you have someone in prison, you tend not to, you know, disclose that. 
my close friends knew, you know, they knew, but then everyone kind of goes back to their life. They figured, okay, it's, it's over now, you know, thank goodness it's settled. Now he's in prison. Okay. He'll serve his time. He'll come out. People don't understand going to prison. It's not going, it's living it and what happens inside or what may happen inside and how traumatizing it is for everyone in prison and how our criminal ju- our prison system is is such a squandered opportunity mm-hmm. when instead of creating a rehabilitative system it's purely a retribution it's not well, rehabilitation it's penitentiary right paying penance yeah. right it right. is a punishment it is a penitentiary it is you know we like to think of it as some sort of rehabilitation but it is it's punishment it's penance did your son stay sober through prison i don't know i know that he used suboxone in there i know of one time when he did and he was put in solitary for that but beyond that i really don't know and i I haven't asked him because i don't i don't care Talk to me about healing from this. What does life look like now? How 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 do you reconcile and 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 manage in the world today? Well, the healing process was slow and has taken a long time, but for me, I've found my balance and I feel, you know, I'm back to my original photography. And so art is very healing and I'm a writer. And, you know, working on the book has been, I won't say it's been healing, but I will say it has given me a serious focus because I worked on it every single day. It's been like eight, 10 years, you know, so I would say I'm in, I'm in good shape. What's your relationship like with David? It's still very close. We never lost it. It's amazing, but we really never lost it. And I think it's, we got even closer when he was in prison. Oh, yeah. We talked on the phone all the time. I visited him. I sent him packages. I think it's important for parents actually to always stay connected to their child who's using drugs. Yes. It does not mean you approve. By staying connected, it's not approval. They need to know, they need to internalize your presence because addiction is very lonely and there are very dark moments. And at least they can think, well, mom or dad or whoever, you know, is is with me. I'm not completely alone. And it's critical, no matter how upset you are and angry and no, if they've stolen from you, no matter what they've done, stay connected so they feel loved and they know you love them because they're struggling. They're in pain. Absolutely. Absolutely. Something we do in our house, we say two things. I tell my boys who are, are six, I tell them, and I've, we've, we've been doing this forever. When I'm, when they're in trouble, I always tell them, I love you. And this has nothing to do with how, what I, how I feel about you. And then the other thing I tell them every night before they go to bed is there's nothing you could do, say, or be to change how much I love you. And and I do, I think you're right. It's important that we, we need to know that you still love us because we can't imagine a world where someone would love us. We feel so unlovable. We don't love ourselves. That's for sure. And we just, it's, it's unimaginable to us, particularly if you don't have children, how you could possibly love us given what we've done. And so that reminder, you may think it's obvious because you're still showing up and all the things, but we need to hear it. What is his life like now? David has put together a good life for himself. 
He's married and she knows his background. She accepted it. And he has two children. He has a three and a half year old and an eight month old. And he has a job. He's supporting them. So I'd say I'm amazed at his strength. I'm just amazed. The whole time he was in prison, I would think sometimes I couldn't believe how strong he was. Yeah. When does your book come out? Well, that's a good question. I'm on the final edit now, and I'm going to be sending it out to agents probably within two months. You are incredibly altruistic and brave and bold for being willing to come out and say, I did stuff that contributed to my kid's addiction. That's a scary thing, right? That's a scary thing to come out and say. And yet it's so important because it's happening all the time and people have no idea. And of course it's not their intention. That's, that's, kind of why I did it. I did it because, because I believe it or not, I'm pretty private here. I've written a book and I'm on a podcast, but yeah. I usually am pretty private. Yeah. Yeah. But, but you see but, the importance. Yes. I can see other parents. I see myself and I also want parents to know they're not alone. This has happened right. to others that, you know, it, it sort of embrace them and say, look, this is, you know, cause I felt so alone. Yes. So this has happened to others. It's happening to others. And this is what could help you maybe. Yes. Is there a place, do you have a website or social media or any place where people can follow along so that when the book comes out, they get notifications or do you have any email address or something where people can connect with you? I have a Facebook page and that's probably the best place. I mean, I'm on Instagram too. Just my name. It's L-Y-N-N-R-O-T-H-E-N-B-E-R-G. Awesome. So if people want to connect with you, they can go to your Facebook page or your Instagram, which are your name and connect with you. And we are so, so excited for the book to come out. Please keep us posted. We will post about it. We will let people know. Thank you. Awesome. This has been wonderful. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you so much. This was really, it was just exciting to be speaking to you and to so many other parents like me. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for, you know, and letting us invade your privacy and, and <laughs> talking about it. I promise you so many people are are feeling the same way and need to hear, need to normalize it. So thank you. Thank you very, very much. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.